Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, Slowly takes the stand. When any police service loses significantly public trust and confidence, that in of itself is a massive public safety threat and risk. Ottawa's former police chief defends his actions and his force's work during last February's so-called Freedom Convoy. He placed a lot of blame on intelligence gathering. So did bad intel lead to the Ottawa occupation? Ottawa's former police chief and the former head of CSIS break it all down for us. Then an attack on the husband of one of America's most powerful politicians. The suspect pulled the hammer away from Ms. Pelosi and violently assaulted him with it. San Francisco police have charged a 42-year-old man with multiple counts after an early morning attack on the spouse of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. CTV's Tom Walters has the latest from California, plus a look at the federal books. As Canadians stare down a possible recession, the government is preparing plans to avoid it. Finance Minister Christian Freeland is pitching prudence as pandemic spending winds down. Our Friday strategy session previews next week's mini-budget. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. The level of disinformation and misinformation was off the charts. It was crushing to the members' morale. It was crushing to the incident command team's morale. It was crushing to my executive team's morale. I suspect it was crushing to the board. It was crushing to everybody. A look behind the scenes at how the convoy and the coverage of the police response was affecting everyone at the Ottawa Police Service. Former Police Chief Peter Slowly spent all day testifying at the commission. It was sometimes defensive, other times emotional. But it was the first time we heard from Slowly after a week of testimony that laid a lot of blame at his feet. Watching it all with CTV national reporter Judy Trin. She joins us live from the commission now. Uh, Judy, what was it like to hear Peter slowly lay out his version of what happened? It was very interesting, Mike. You know, Peter slowly has to defend the Ottawa Police Service to a certain degree, but he also has to defend his own record. He began his testimony by explaining that, you know, when he came in, he was supposed to be the change person. He was supposed to help change the culture within the force, which was dealing with issues of racism and misogyny. And he was also dealing with a force that was depleted in its senior ranks. One of the things he highlighted was that at the time of the convoy, when it arrived, they had lost senior incident commanders. Uh, these are individuals individuals who were involved in the last big crisis here on in Ottawa, the 2014 attack on Parliament Hill. So they had lost that type of expertise when the uh, Freedom Convoy arrived. And then he also uh, defended himself ag against accusations that he was tyrannical. He said that he was not a micromanager, that he did not require sign-off on everything in order for a plan to go ahead, and that he was not interfering in operations, that he just wanted to make sure that the operational side of it was implementing the strategy set out by the executive team. Another issue that we heard also was about uh, uh, the fact that intelligence, he stuck to his guns when it came to supporting the Ottawa Police Intelligence. We've heard some indications that the Ottawa Police Intelligence report was uh, very watered down compared to what the provincial police were telling uh, Ottawa Police, uh, including that uh, the Ottawa Police report was perhaps more sympathetic, calling uh, protesters grassroots and middle 
middle class and saying that they were just trying to air out their grievances, whereas the OPP seemed to give a real threat assessment that these uh, that there were actors who wanted to uh, illegally occupy the city, that they were intending to stay for an extended period of time. And, you know, slowly said that the best estimates that he got was that there would be between one to 3,000 protesters heading into the city. What actually ended up happening was 5,000 trucks arrived, 5,000 vehicles arrived on the Saturday, many of them big rigs, and more than 15,000 protesters. So it was something that was just off the charts in terms of the projections. And then he said the negative media attention that the Ottawa Police Service was getting depleted morale. Take a listen. They were doing their very best under inhuman circumstances, like the city was, like the community was. It was too cold and it was too much. But they did their very best. And I'm grateful to them. And they should be celebrated. Not celebrated, that's the wrong word. They should be understood. You know, it's interesting that he said uh, these officers should be celebrated. He wanted to make sure that uh, police officers knew that he appreciated their work during what he said was an unprecedented event, uh, a crisis that no one uh, could have seen coming. Uh, it, Mike, you know, the, uh, the OPP intelligence reports would say that, they, that there were clear indications that this was going to be an entrenched uh, crisis. CTV National News reporter Judy Trin at the Emergencies Act inquiry. We're going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much for this, Judy. Really appreciate it. Former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly was also asked about potential warnings as the protest approached the Capitol. Slowly was critical of the quality of the intelligence he was getting from the federal government. There's a structural deficit in our national intelligence threat risk assessment process. I'm grateful for the Ontario Provincial Police for filling that gap doing so to the very best of their ability. But it was not optimal for us or any other jurisdiction that faced any element of these events. And one of my recommendations, sir, with great respect, is that there needs to be an investment in our national intelligence threat risk assessment structure. The former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly clearly laying some blame on the federal intelligence that he was or wasn't getting as the convoy approached the Capitol. So would that have even helped or was Slowly just trying to save his reputation today? Joining me to discuss that is the former director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Services, or CSIS, Ward Alcock, and the former Ottawa Police Chief Charles Bordelow. Welcome to both you. Mr. Alcock, let's start with you. Is Chief Slowly right to criticize the quality of the intelligence that he was getting or even the amount of it? Well, at this stage, the only one we, the only intelligence we know he was receiving was intelligence from from the OPP. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen intelligence from any other any other party, uh, and I don't know what other parties may have played into the the OPP reporting, because there are relationships between the OPP, the RCMP, and CSIS, and so on. So there may have well have been a sharing of intelligence. Uh, clearly, the RCMP and CSIS didn't see this, particularly CSIS didn't see this as a, a matter of national security, but they would have had intelligence 
presumably to offer to the OPP and to other and, and to other police forces, but it probably would be more on the margins. Um, the OPP is the senior police force in the province. Um, the federal government is not responsible for the, the, the province or the, 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 the municipalities in the province. I think as, as even Mr. Ford has on occasion recognized, uh, cities are creatures of the province. Um, so in some sense, the real nexus is between the OPP and, and the Ottawa City Police doesn't mean they don't have relationships with others like the OPP, like the RCMP and CSIS. Is that one but, of the problems, though, considering that this is the capital and always such a target, especially for something like this? But I know, but I, I, I was struck by something your reporter said, which was that, in fact, um, Dr. Mr. Sully's problem was more with the reporting he was get, getting from his own people. Mm. I don't know where they were getting their intelligence feed apart from the OPP. They may have also talked to CSIS or to the RCMP. But he seems to be dissatisfied with what he was getting from his own people rather than what he was getting from the others. Because clearly the information that was coming in from the OPP was that there was a serious issue here and this was not going to be a normal protest that would dissipate within a matter of days. Right. He had also, during some of his testimony, pointed at a lack of federal response as well. But Mr. Bordelow, I wanted to bring you in here. I mean, this testimony has given us insight to how the convoy really played out from the perspective of the former chief. He even got emotional when he was talking about how this was affecting his officers and uh, from what we've heard at the inquiry, Ottawa police was just not prepared to deal with the convoy. Uh, you know, I just wanted to get your reaction to that first. Well, I think clearly if there's any accountability, it's not with the frontline officers who are out there in that cold and trying to do the best job they, they did. I think it's more at the leadership and the command and control area, the, the partners that were at the table. I think that's where the inquiry is, is trying to determine exactly what happened or what didn't happen. Uh, on the intelligence piece, you know, I, I think there's a huge disconnect here in, in them not uh, understanding uh, the OPP reports. The Hendon reports are very clear, according to the OPP, that this is going to be a protracted event. And it did speak to uh, a national movement around truck coming from different parts of the country. So I'm not too sure what other information Chief Slowly would be looking for uh, from and as, and as an example, the Integrated Threat Assessment Center, ITAC, uh, that's a federal responsibility. So I, too, am looking forward to hearing from the RCMP as to what was feeding their intelligence and what were they supplying. But I'm not clear on what other information they, they could have used to tell them that this is going to, be going to be big and this is going to be protracted like the OPP uh, reports were indicating. Mr. Alcock, you're nodding there. I mean, so what does that say to you about the role that intelligence could have or should have played here? Well, intelligence can only play a role if you pay attention to it and, and or if you interpret it properly. And there appears to have been a problem within the Ottawa Police Service in terms of interpreting the intelligence that was there from the OPP, which signaled that there was a real problem. I, I agree with Chief Bordalo. I don't know what Chief Slowly would have expected from other people. Um, I mean, from Assis's point of view, they're looking at national security issues. They may have information to feed into other people's other people's information flow, and may indeed have had they have links with the OPP, so may well have fed into the may well have been part of the the OPP reporting. So he may have been getting it indirectly. But until we hear uh, some more from either ITAC or from from other federal organizations, it's not clear what their role would have been or what role they did play. 
Mr. Bortolo, I wanted to ask you, yesterday we had heard from um, the commissioner of the, the OPP who was saying essentially um, that he, his force could have done more. I think a lot of people are sort of scratching their heads and asking why the OPP didn't do more. How did you react to that? Well, I think that uh, the, one of the key areas that could have been improved upon is an earlier integration of their planning teams and also an earlier uh, invocation of, of uh, a unified command center uh, because clearly there were some relationship issues or some communication issues between Ottawa Police Service, RCEP and OPP around how many resources were required, what they were going to do, when you needed them. Uh, and there was some miscommunication uh, around those three organizations. So I, I'm, I, I think bringing OPP in and integrating them into the planning at an earlier stage would have potentially mitigated any communication issues around what those resources were going to be used for and when and what they needed from a subject matter expert perspective to bring to Ottawa. Certainly some lessons for next time, and a lot of people hope that there isn't a next time. Mr. Bortolo, Mr. Elcock, thank you both for joining us here. Coming up, a Friday morning attack leaves Paul Pelosi in hospital. The husband of U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was assaulted Friday morning during a break-in at the couple's home. More on that when we return on Power Play. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, was violently assaulted in the couple's San Francisco home early this morning. Local police say Pelosi's husband was attacked with a hammer. The suspect is now in police custody. 42-year-old David DePapi is charged with attempted homicide and burglary, along with many other counts. Our officers observed Mr. Pelosi and the suspect both holding a hammer. The suspect pulled the hammer away from Ms. Pelosi and violently assaulted him with it. Our officers immediately tackled the suspect, disarmed him, took him into custody, requested emergency backup, and rendered medical aid. In a social media post, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau wrote, The attack on Paul Pelosi is appalling and completely unacceptable, and I condemn this violence in the strongest possible terms. I join the American people in wishing him a full recovery. I'm keeping him, Speaker Pelosi, and their entire family in my thoughts. CTV News, Los Angeles Bureau Chief Tom Walters has been following this for us south of the border. He joins us now. Tom, what do we know about the attack and how it happened? Well, it was about 2.30 this morning, Mike, and it uh, was really the circumstances that you described. Police were uh, called to the home uh, of uh, the Pelosi's, Paul and uh, Nancy Pelosi, in San Francisco, and they found a struggle going on. Uh, the 82-year-old Paul Pelosi wrestling with this 42-year-old uh, alleged attacker, uh, struggling over a, a hammer, and uh, as police arrived, the attacker was pulling the hammer away from Paul Pelosi and, and began striking him with it. Uh, he was, uh, police say, quickly subdued, and um, they uh, took the uh, attacker into custody and began uh, immediately getting medical attention uh, for Paul Pelosi. How is Paul Pelosi doing right now? 
Well, we know that he uh, underwent surgery for his injuries, and they are said to be significant, but uh, indications are that he is expected to make a full recovery. Just an incredible at attack on him, Tom. I mean, can we talk a little bit about the bigger picture here? What does this mean for politicians and their safety? I mean, the fact that this happened in the Pelosi home. Well, it, of course, is a, a huge concern, and, and it's not in isolation because uh, threats against Nancy Pelosi um, have been relatively uh, uh, common. Threats against members of Congress generally are alarmingly frequent. Uh, uh, CBS News reports that, um, that uh, Capitol Police have investigated some 10,000 uh, threats against um, members of Congress in the past year, uh, which is really a staggering number and, uh, and alarming, of course, for, uh, you know, for civil democracy. Have police said anything about what security was like at the time? I mean, normally you would have security around uh, Ms. Pelosi. Uh, I I'm assuming that there wasn't as much around the home at the time. Yeah, well, I think that's got to be a fair assumption. Um, certainly, there has been heightened security for members of Congress, but uh, clearly whatever security there was at the Pelosi home was inadequate to uh, prevent this intruder from getting in and, uh, and committing a, uh, an extremely serious assault. And uh, the, the suspect in the case is now facing charges of assault and attempted homicide. And I know it's very early, Tom, but I just wanted to know if there's any indication uh, what more we know about this, sus this suspect or even his motives. Well, police say they aren't sure of the motives yet. But, uh, you know, there, there is certainly a clear pattern uh, in what's been seen of this individual's social media posting, online presence, uh, to suggest that he is in thrall of various uh, uh, conspiracy theories, um, and uh, um, including um, some of the beliefs that led to the uh, January 6th insurrection in Washington, where, of course, um, at one point, uh, the people who stormed the Capitol could be heard shouting, you know, where's Nancy? Uh, those were the same words that, um, that this intruder was shouting when uh, he attacked Paul Pelosi. He was, uh, police report that he was saying, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Uh, Nancy Pelosi herself, of course, was in Washington at the time of the attack this morning and is on her way back to San Francisco. Just so shocking. Thank you so much for this. CTV News' Los Angeles Bureau Chief Tom Walters tonight. Well, here's some other news that you need to know. After months of the will he or won't he legal wrangling, the world's richest man now controls Twitter. Elon Musk seemingly confirming the Twitter takeover himself with a tweet reading, quote, the bird is freed. His first act after closing the $44 billion deal was firing three top executives. Musk has said he wants to clean Twitter of spam accounts and open it up as a platform for free speech. Today he said no decisions on content or reinstating of accounts will be made until, quote, content moderation is created. A content moderation council is made. Now, and the Prime Minister was in Winnipeg today addressing the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress and announcing new sanctions targeting individuals in the Russian energy sector. 35 more individuals to that list, including influential leaders of the state-owned energy company Gazprom and sanctioning six 
energy sector entities. We will continue to tighten the screws on anyone abetting this illegal invasion. And we intend to impose new sanctions on members of the Russian justice and security sectors, including police officers and investigators, prosecutors, judges and prison officials, anyone involved in gross and systemic human rights violations against Russian opposition leaders. The Prime Minister also addressed military aid for Ukraine. He says the 39 armored combat vehicles promised to the country have started to arrive in Europe and will be in Ukraine by the end of November. The government also announced a five-year bond program that would allow investors to buy bonds in support of the Ukrainian government. They will be offered through Canadian banks and channeled through the International Monetary Fund. Canada's economy is growing a little. The country's gross domestic product rose ever so slightly from July to August. The number is more impressive, though, year over year. The GDP inched up 0.1% in August. It was the same figure for July, but the rate is up 4% compared to August of 2021. Largest month-to-month -month gains were seen in agriculture, the cannabis sector, and construction. The biggest year-over-year -year gain was in the arts, entertainment, and recreation sector. That sector saw 40% growth after years of COVID restrictions and closures. And coming up, we're less than a week away from the Liberals' fall economic update. So with high inflation and high interest rates bogging down Canadians, what's at stake for this economic update? Our Friday panel of strategists will dig in coming up next. Power Play is taking a timeout, but we will be right back. As we emerge from the pandemic, we are running a tight fiscal ship. We have the lowest deficit and debt to GDP ratio in the G7, and we committed to saving $9 billion from government spending in the 2022 budget. Canadians are cutting back on costs, and so too is our government. That's how we'll do our part to not make inflation both worse and longer lasting. That was Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christopher Freeland last week previewing limited spending. Now it's time for you to mark your calendars. November 3rd, you want to circle that date. That's when Christopher Freeland will be giving Canadians a snapshot of government's finances in the fall economic statement. Couldn't come soon enough. Canadians are looking at their own bank accounts as they deal with high inflation, rising food prices and high interest rates. The minister's fiscal update comes as the Bank of Canada just raised the key interest rate to 3.75% and as annual inflation hit 6.9% last month. That's clear. People are feeling the pain in their pocket butts, books. So should the federal government provide new relief for Canadians in their fall economic statement or we brace for some belt tightening as a recession looms? Let's bring in our strategy session to weigh in. We have Greg McEachran from Proof Strategies. He leans liberal. Adrienne Batra, she's the editor-in-chief of the Toronto Sun. And she brings that conservative voice to the table. And Kim Wright an NDP strategist and principal at Right Strategies. Thank you all for joining us. Greg, let's start with you. It's not a budget, it's a statement. So what kind of a statement does the government need to be making here, especially in this economic storm that we see on the horizon? And good point. So it's really good to emphasize this is not a budget. It's an update. 
Um, that being said, I think the you know we talked a little bit about this last week too. Uh, Freeland has been telegraphing some of the messages around this. So I think, you know, the um, the, the days of the big uh, spending that was associated with the pandemic are over. But you're not going to see conservative level austerity. Um, you know, there still will be, I believe, announcements. There still will be spending. But I think we're probably going to see about where they want this government wants Canada to move. Um, you know, uh, critical min minerals, um, electric vehicles, things like that. The other one I would watch for is let's not forget what our big news was prior to the pandemic was trying to negotiate a new NAFTA with the former president uh, Trump. Um, and there's some things that still have to be kind of taken care of that. I'm, I'm sure the agricultural industry is awaiting something from, from um, the deputy prime minister on that. But they've got to do something more than what they have now with these, all these targeted programs to help Canadians. Because few people feel like it's actually helping them right now. Yeah, and the challenge is, is how quickly can you get those out the door. Now, there was, and, and again, full credit, all parties supported an increase to the uh, GST, and, you know, that will be coming out soon. Um, the dental um, bill passed, which, you know, the NDP mm. can take deservedly some credit for. So there are some <clears> things there. They have to be careful, though. More money in the economy at a time of high inflation is not necessarily a good thing. And that's something, obviously, that Adrian probably has something to say about. What's at mm -hmm. stake here for their economic uh, update? I mean, the Liberals have been signaling that they're moving towards austerity. Minister Freeland saying last week, quote, you cannot compensate every single Canadian for every single additional cost imposed by elevated global inflation. So is that the kind of line that the Conservatives want to hear from the finance minister instead of more spending? I think it's certainly one of the things that Canadians need to hear, that their federal government feels their pain has some compassion for the realities that they're facing every day when they go to the grocery store or fill up their tank with gas or or even, you know, want to have a night out with their family and a, a dinner or something like that. And I think what Minister Freeland has been projecting over the last few weeks is um, that that sense that that conservatives have been talking about it's time that we 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 get some of the spending under control in that clip you just played mike before we we came on air i think was was very telling um about what we will likely hear uh next week sure greg is absolutely right there's still going to be spending there's still going to be um big ticket envelopes that they are going to that they are going to talk about but consequences right now for what we hear next week are are minimal i mean there's there's no election on the horizon but i think what what canadian need to hear and feel is that their federal government understands that they are they're hurting we are everyone's hurting it doesn't matter what demographic you're in and so let's see what they they offer up in terms of I, I don't expect that we're gonna see tax relief uh, but even keeping mm -hmm. the spending down is is quite significant as most economists have said they can't contribute to the rising cost of inflation Kim, to bring you in here, the NDP does have that deal with the Liberals. So other than that spending that's earmarked for dental care and farmer care, what does the NDP need to see in this fall economic update as we head towards a recession? I mean, would the NDP really stand in the way of belt tightening? What we're looking for is, and, and I will always say this, show me your budget and I'll show you your values. So when we push forward on dental care, it was to make sure that small children in particular, to start with, have the same dental benefits as the 338 members of parliament do. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to look for. We also have been pushing for the reduction in GST. We've been pushing for the reduction on, on the rental supports, making sure that Canadians have what they need to help move forward. 
forward. What we're not going to be supportive of will be things like uh, not allowing the um, EI premiums to go through because what we know will be that in these tough economic times, people will have to rely on EI, which got depleted immensely during uh, during the pandemic. So we'll look to those types of uh, types of things going forward that are meaningful to Canadians, because you'll remember in the last two elections, Canadians sent parliamentarians back to figure their things out, learn how to work in the sandbox for the benefit of Canadians, not for CEOs who make billions of dollars off of grocery store profits, for example, and do it at the complete uh, you know, love and support of, of some of the members of parliament, including Mr. Polyev, who then will turn around and do a video about inflation and supply chain, but it does nothing to figure out how to actually make it work for Canadians and make these things work. So Jagmeet Singh and the New Democrats are very much looking forward to, as we always do, which is putting <clears throat> forward concrete ideas that matter to Canadians and not more you know, tax cuts and fluffy puppies for CEOs. Greg, I just wanted to shift gears to the Emergencies Act inquiry. We're seeing a lot of testimony this week specifically on basically police forces pointing the fingers at each other. Does that give the Prime Minister a little more of a sigh of relief as he sort of gets ready for his testimony because it's not so much on the politics and it's not so much on the politicians' decisions behind the scenes, but really what the confusion was on the ground and in the police forces? Does that help the Liberals as they're going forward here? Yeah, it, absolutely it does. I, I don't want to reduce it to brass tacks around politics, though. It is soul-killing, as a, someone who lives in, in Ottawa, to, to hear of the dysfunction that happened at all levels of government, but now we're hearing in the police forces. And I think there's a lot more to come on this. And it's almost, you know, it, it gets to almost ridiculous satire when you have, there was a superintendent this week who insisted that they had 34 tow trucks ready to go. And then, you know, the federal government's lawyer came up and said, you know, that plan fell through. And he didn't. He learned about it on the stand. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, you know, look, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even play one on this show. But I do think what it shows is this incredible dysfunction at the police level. There was something that needed to be done. The federal government did it. If it's not the Emergencies Act, maybe one of the things that can come out of this is this situation could happen again. The problem I have right now is if you think the Prime Minister overreached, like Adrian said two weeks ago, Doug Ford disagrees, but if you think he overreached, you also seem to be in a group of people like the MP for Medicine Hat last night at committee who still says that the Prime Minister should have met with these people who were talking about overthrowing the government. So, you know, if you think he overreached, you also think that it could still be going on because these are lovely people, let's deliver them donuts. And it shouldn't have to happen to you or your city for you to care about this. I just want to bring Adrian here uh, in, mm -hmm. not only because Greg mentioned you, but also in, in terms of how you think that this gives any kind of political cover to the Prime Minister because of what we're seeing was happening behind the scenes. I don't think it gives them cover per se, but it certainly gives uh, a, a, an opportunity for them to, to, for, for Prime Minister Trudeau to say, look, our law enforcement agencies, there was, there was mass confusion. I think, it, regardless of your political strike, just step back for a moment. 
the government's number one job is to ensure the safety of its citizenry. And what we've heard, every Canadian should be paying attention to this, because what we heard was none of them were reading intelligence reports. None of them were reading each other's briefings. None of them were really communicating properly with one another. None of them took a, a role, a, a leadership role. That in of itself, if anything we take away from this, Mike, is, is a fundamental recall, an overhaul of how these large-scale uh, protests are, are dealt with in the future, that should be one takeaway. The challenge Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has, as the testimony does come forward, is is one thing that we did hear from the former RCMP, uh, from the from the current RCMP commissioner, excuse me, Brenda Lucky, that she did write to the, gov to the, to the Prime Minister and said, look, we have not exhausted all of our avenues and, and tools that we have currently given to us through the Ontario uh, Emergencies Act. So those are the sorts of things that that are going to to continue to put put more spotlight on the fact that perhaps that the that the Liberal government did overstep with the invocation of the act. Kim, I hate to do this to you, but I've only got 30 seconds. So <laughs> if I can get you to react on this in 30 seconds. Yeah, I think that it is a sad state of affairs of a lack of coordination. And, you know, it wasn't like the convoys just showed up. They rolled across the country. And I think that the <laughs> The lack of uh, foresight uh, from various agencies and lack of taking this seriously, this was never going to be just an afternoon of, of placards. Uh, they were in for the long haul. They telegraphed that literally across the prairies. Uh, so why do we have this situation? That's the part that is head scratching. And, you know, the city of Ottawa is notorious for cracking down on two little girls at a lemonade stand, but they couldn't figure out how to deal with this massive movement that was rolling into their city. Maybe they didn't want to. I don't know. But uh, here's where we are today with lack of information still. Got to leave it there. Kim Wright, Adrian Batra and Greg McEachern. Thank you all for joining us. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Up next, Canada's Supreme Court strikes down a law requiring the automatic lifetime registry of sex offenders. Why was that law deemed unconstitutional by the top court? We'll break it all down with legal expert Ari Goldkind coming up next. Today, the Supreme Court of Canada struck down a law that automatically put sex offenders on the National Registry for Life. It was first brought in by then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Canada's top court ruled in a 5-4 split that it was unconstitutional to automatically register those convicted to two or more sex offenses if they are not, quote, in increased risk of reoffending. Today's court decision means offenders who registered after 2011 can appeal to have their status changed. To break it all down, let's bring in criminal defense lawyer and legal analyst Ari Goldkind. Welcome to the show. First, why was this provision of the criminal code deemed unconstitutional? So, Mike, this is a really interesting case, and the headlines should not be what they will inevitably later, which is the Supreme Court goes light on sex offenders or cuts them a break. This is a Supreme Court that is notoriously difficult on accused or convicted people charged or convicted with sex offenses. If you're an accused and you go to the Supreme Court to appeal, you lose 34 to 35 to zero. So nobody should take that takeaway. What the Supreme Court said, and this is the key to the decision, if there's no intervening act, if, for example, you're an 18 or 19-year-old at a party, maybe you've had a bit too much to drink, and you touch the buttocks or the breast of two people at the party, 
you would have been sentenced to the sex offender registry for life. Judges did not have discretion. It was taken away. And the intervening act part is important. We're not talking Paul Bernardo here, where it's not as if you were told not to do something, and then you went and did it again two years later. So remember that 18 or 19-year-old example. And the Supreme Court said that if the purpose of the sex offender registry is to help police find sex offenders to solve those crimes, if the person we're talking about here is not thought by anybody, and I mean this very clearly, not thought by anybody, particularly the judge, to be at a risk to reoffend going forward, it is almost akin to cruel and unusual punishment, to use a term from the Supreme Court in a previous case, to label them a sex offender on the registry for life, which without getting too far into the details, decimates somebody's ability to get a job, travel, move around, live where they want to live. It is almost a sentence, Mike, much, much harder than the 30, 60 days in jail, six months in jail that they would have otherwise received. All right, I've got 20 seconds left. Should Canadians be worried about this effort now that some people can take to get their names off that list? Or is it, as you were saying, this is only applying to certain people here? No Canadian should be worried at all that this opens the floodgates to anything or that this means that Paul Bernardo, like sex offenders, rapists, will catch a break. That is not what today's decision is about. No headline should go out on anti-social media about this. This was the Supreme Court saying, look, if you're going to punish people, do it in a constitutional way. And oh, by the way, let judges who know the case is best let them exercise their discretion when it is fit to do so. Legal expert Ari Goldkind, thank you so much for taking the time and breaking it all down for us. We're going to have to leave it there. Still to come, Doug Ford's fight to not testify at the Emergencies Act inquiry. Is this a winning strategy for the Ontario Premier? Our press gallery will give us their plays and misplays of the week. It's Friday. It's fun time. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's that time of the week again. We cap off our week in politics with plays and misplays. Last week it was so cringeworthy. My intro, that is, that I'm not doing that again. So we're just going to get straight to it. Okay? If you don't like it, that's too bad. Send viewer mail saying that you want more cringe. CTV's online political politics reporter, Rachel Aiello, she's here. A couple of clicks away to ctvnews.ca. You can subscribe to Capital Dispatch. That's her newsletter. Toronto Star columnist, Susan Delacourt. Greg Weston from Earns Cliff Strategies, thank you to all of you for being here. Rachel, you have a play to hand out this week. Yeah, so I'm giving my play this week to Government House Leader Mark Holland for, I think, using a moment of vulnerability to better inform how the House of Commons makes big decisions. This was part of a conversation about hybrid. Over the last number of weeks, a, a committee has been hearing from MPs past and present about whether hybrid parliament should stay or go, what their experience has been, or in the case of former MPs, what it maybe would have been like if they needed to be home taking care of a loved one or they were sick to be able to still represent their constituents. And so in this, Mark Holland gave an impassioned, emotional admission of his own struggles as a rookie, trying to do it all in Ottawa, uh, eventually hitting rock bottom, his family having a lot of consequences as a result. Uh, but he, what made this a play for me, Mike, is that he turned this into a conversation about 
how do we remind each other of civility? And he kind of made this impassioned plea for why my example could be one informing this hybrid conversation. Take a listen. I think that we've been able to demonstrate over the last couple of months in the House um, the, uh, the appropriate and effective use of these provisions without undermining accountability. And I think in the process that we've been more human and hopefully will attract um, other people here. Because I think one of the things that we have to think of, regardless of what you think of me or any parliamentarian, um, we have to care about the future of this place. And we have to care about who walks in these doors. And we need to attract the brightest and the best. And those people need to be able to take a look at their families and say, I'm going to be able to be there in really critical moments. Um, when times are really tough, you're going to be able to count on me to be able to be there. So, look, obviously, I don't know where this hybrid parliament future conversation mm -hmm. is going to go. Obviously, I think serious consideration needs to be made for interpreters uh, if they're going to go ahead with it. But I just thought this was kudos for a key moment kind of reminding us all what really matters in these heated debates we sometimes have on the Hill. And, Susan, humanizing people because we forget that sometimes. Yeah, you usually only get uh, admissions like this out when people are leaving politics, you know. And um, um, I, I watched it uh, in real time, and I was quite affected by it. He also said in there, he talked about um, about what defeat had done to him. Mm -hmm. That if you're in politics so long and you put everything into it and let everything else suffer, uh, you are devastated when you lose. And um, he talked about trying to take his own life, um, about the fact that he was worried he wouldn't get a job. The, the story of, of defeated MPs and defeated politicians is also a, a sad story here in Canada. So um, it, was, it, it was, as Rachel said, it was a, it was a really nice human moment, uh, hard, searing, right. but a, a, a very human moment on the Hill. And Greg, a rethink of how work not only that we do, but that they do, needs to be sort of reimagined as well. Well, you know, I, I watched it for 30-odd years, and, um, uh, you know, as Rachel and Susan said, you know, it's a hard life. I mean, people go into politics, and, and I've had lots of people over the years come to me and say, you know, I'm thinking of running for office, and I say, well, you know, give it some really serious thought because you're giving up a lot, and they do give up a lot. Um, uh, it's stressful, it's long hours, uh, it's away from home. Mm -hmm. um, and we've watched, I've personally watched dozens of uh, really, really dedicated, wonderful people um, take a, a big personal toll for uh, representing their constituents here. Yeah, kudos to him for doing that again and shining a light on it. Susan, you've got a misplay. We've got a clip to show people first. Have a look, everyone. This is a federal inquiry into the federal government's use of the Federal Emergencies Act. From day one, Mr. Speaker, for Ontario, this was a, a policing matter. It was not a political matter. And the opposition knows, Mr. Speaker, politicians don't direct the police. So, Susan, it's Doug Ford, it and is. it's about his non-appearance at the inquiry. I am stunned that he continues to do this. I, um, I have to give a shout-out to my colleague, Rob Benzie, who has uh, found a clip from June uh, today in which uh, Doug Ford said he would participate mm -hmm. in this inquiry. It is off-brand for a guy who calls himself a, you know, I've been joking that maybe he should give Paul Rouleau his cell phone number, you know, because yeah. he, he talks to everybody uh, except this commission. It also invites comparisons. I'm sorry, I'm going to mail about this to Donald Trump, uh, who's cl claiming privilege of his own in not testifying. It is a, 
there are documents in front of this commission saying the Prime Minister says just uh, Doug Ford is hiding. He's telling Jim Watson Doug Ford is hiding and Doug Ford is hiding from this this commission. I am I'm I'm totally stunned uh, by the the political tone deafness of this. Hiding in plain sight, Rachel. Yeah. I mean, he's in, he's in the legislature, yeah. and but not at the commission. Look, and I think parliamentary privilege is a real thing and needs to be respected. However, all of the eight federal ministers who have agreed to testify would be able to invoke the same parliamentary privilege, and they're not. So I think this is absolutely not really, no matter what his lawyers are saying, uh, a question of over procedure and what is proper. It is him absolutely wanting to be completely excluded from this whole conversation. We're getting short on time. Greg, let's go to your misplay now. Tell me who you're giving to it this week. Well, uh, back to the, uh, to the inquiry. Um, Police Chief Peter Slowly made his uh, long-awaited appearance today. And um, uh, to have gone through all the testimony we've had uh, of people saying, you know, we tried to warn the Ottawa police, the memos going back and forth, um, the absolute gong show that was taking place during this whole thing uh, involving the police, and he accepted no responsibility for it. First rule of uh, damage control, if you are a leader of an organization, take responsibility. Uh, just accept responsibility, Say, and especially for a police chief. A police chief occupies even more than the CEO of a, of, of a corporation. The police chief occupies a very special place. And for him not to take responsibility, um, I think he squandered an opportunity to help restore his reputation as a leader and instead probably just made things worse for himself. Yeah, and Susan, nice to see him there without all the tire tracks on his back from being <laughs> thrown under the bus. I, I think it was. I... I, I... I don't disagree with Greg, but I, I, I say I think he, after being thrown under the bus so many times, he was probably owed a day of trying to get out from under that right. bus. And I, cross-examination on Monday is going to be really interesting. Rachel got about 45 seconds. Yeah, yeah I just think that Susan said like that is the point. He had a full day of questioning from the commission lawyers. There's going to be a full another day on Monday getting the cross-examination. So of anyone so far, he's had the most time to testify. And I think that is an indication of the role he has played. And so for Greg to note that he hasn't really taken responsibility is a big question. And I'm curious to see where the conversation goes on Monday as this continues. But certainly a bit of a, maybe not surprising, but a little bit of disappointing amount of candor from him so far. And maybe that's coming in the cross-examination, or maybe there's some admissions that are coming. I don't know, but, I mean, certainly not yet. Yeah, I guess we'll see. There's a ton of documents. We're all trying to sift our way through them. Maybe they're there. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much. Susan Delacourt, Rachel Aiello, Greg Weston. A pleasure, as always. Thank you for ending the week with us, and thank you for ending your week with us. That is the Power Play Day and Week in Politics. We thank you, as always, for spending your time with us. We'll be back here on Monday. Until then, have a great weekend, everyone.